is one thing somebody said yesterday on a call I was on that I thought was really smart was like, I was, he was basically, this is somebody who's very pro school opening. And he said, it's not that I think that every school should be open, but I think that schools should be the first to open and the last to close. And so in, there are places in the country at the moment, Texas, Florida, Arizona, like many places where basically everything should be closed. Like we, like the virus is in a, in a place where like we should not be having beaches and outdoor dining and indoor dining and bars. And, you know, like we should be sort of down to like lockdown essential services. And in those places, yeah, you also shouldn't have schools. But in places where you are having in outdoor dining and indoor dining and where the bars are open to say then, well, schools, like let's not open schools, seems like it really misses both the differences in risks across things, things that schools are a lot less risky than bars and also the benefits, um, at least to, you know, some, to, to kids, basically. I mean, maybe you could say there are some people who prefer bars to schools. That's almost certainly true. But as a society, I think that I, I think we should. I think we could agree that the social utility of schools is higher than bars. Well, you and I can agree. I mean, let's not like, you know, let's not put words in everyone's mouth, Andrew. Some people might not agree with that, but I think we could agree with that. I'm so thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks, the economist, the author, uh, the person that makes sense of the world for a lot of people out there, Professor Emily Oster. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you for having me. So I first became aware of your work uh, a couple of years ago where I'm a parent. Um, Our kids are about the same age. And there is such like a uh, strange cloud slash buzzsaw of information that uh, descends on you or is made available to you when you're first expecting a child, when you first have a child. It's very, very anxiety inducing. And you did so many people a service by trying to make sense of it from the perspective of a Harvard trained economist, like a PhD in economics from Harvard is like, all right, like, what is the real truth about what you actually should be worried about when you're expecting a child, when you're uh, starting to raise a child? And that was too much for one book. So you wrote two books on these subjects. Uh, One was Expecting Better, um, which uh, hopefully that's self-explanatory. But the other one's Crib Sheet, which uh, which I gave Crib Sheet to my sister-in-law. Uh, because, uh, you know, frankly, I think that all parents could use that book. It's like a, um, an organizing manual for having children. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, it's been a, it's a kind of a weird, it's been kind of a weird ride being sort of an economics professor who also has this sideline in, in telling people things about parenting, but it's been, uh, it's been really fun. I think it's so helpful and necessary because uh, of really the way you think. I mean, again, you're, you're, um, uh, you're uh, an award-winning economist and having someone like you actually just screen all the myths and the bullshit and then say, okay, here's the data, here are the facts on what the real risks are, what the trends are, what you should care about, what you shouldn't care about. Uh, and so today I would love to, to use uh, that same framework to talk about a decision that parents are looking at uh, in the days and weeks ahead, which is schools reopening. Schools. Yes. I hope they're reopening. Yes. Some of them so, are reopening. And, and so one thing you did too, I just want to let people know, um, is that as soon as COVID happened, you got together with a bunch of other economists and academics uh, and started an explainer website uh, called COVID Explained, also very self-explanatory. <laughs> and some of your work at COVID Explained, I thought it was some of the best anywhere, in part because it's presented uh, in lay speak, where, you know, it's like if you're a human being and you want to figure out, okay, uh, do, do I just stop and get uh, the ice cream from uh, the convenience store? Is that okay? Like, am I allowed to socialize with someone? Like, what should I and shouldn't I be doing? I see all of these pictures of people on beaches and then there's like this implicit, like, this is a no-no. And you're like, wait, I thought beaches were all right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, so thank you for your work on that too. How did that uh, get started? So that started um, basically when a friend of mine connected me to some of the, uh, the sort of key like doctor medical people who were doing, who were working in this, like really working in the COVID space. 
And this friend was like, look, I think that people are just very confused about exactly the kind of thing you're saying. So like, wait, I thought beaches were okay. Wait, how does this even work anyway? Like if I go to the grocery store and someone else has been there, like, do I just die immediately? Like what, you know, like what exactly is, is happening? And so, uh, and so we sort of got together and took kind of basically the expertise on the, on the science side, which isn't really my space, although I feel like I'm learning it. Um, and then the sort of things that, that I think I do well, which are like trying to translate some of these scientific ideas into something that is kind of accessible to a layperson without being dumbed down, right? So we're trying to hit a balance between like, it's cool to go to the beach and like, let me tell you all the details of, of exactly what kind of virus this is and like, you know, show you the CRISPR map for it. Like, where is the place in the middle where people are sort of understanding the, enough details of the virus so they can kind of organize their thinking, um, but, uh, but also not so much that it's overwhelming. So that's kind of, that's kind of what we're trying to do there. And I worked together with these doctors to put it together. It's been fun and interesting. I mean, fun is not really quite the right word, but but really, really valuable and useful. Uh, so, because there's so again a flood of information. I, I love uh, your approach to these things, where when there's like a fire hose of information, you know, parents get a fire hose of info about what they're supposed to care about. The public's been getting a fire hose of info about COVID nineteen because like you're like, ooh, there's a new data point, there's a new study, and you're like, what do I pay attention to? Uh, and and so you you take a rigorous data driven approach to be like, all right, here's what's not that risky. Like it turns out uh, going to that uh, grocery store to get the ice cream is not that risky as long as you stay away from people and people are wearing masks and like, you, you know, you don't have a lengthy conversation <laughs> with, with, with the, with the, with the uh, checkout person. Um, but then there are some other things that are not so good uh, and, and you organize it into pretty like standard, easy to understand rules where it's like, look, you know what's not so good? time indoors, like face to face with people, uh, you know, you know, what's not so bad outdoors where you tend to have more space and uh, the virus is, is uh, harder to get from someone unless again, you're standing there having a face to face sustained conversation with them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now the more, more most uh, fraught question of the moment, um, what are we going to do about schools? And, you know, I, I know you have a personal stake in this. I have a personal stake in this. I, you know, I'll, I'll share for myself. So I've got two uh, boys, one of whom is autistic. Um, they're both scheduled to start school in New York City in September. Uh, and uh, who knows if that's going to happen sort of thing where it's like every parent is taking it all with like a massive grain of salt. Um, but you operate as if uh, it is happening. And then as a parent, uh, you have your own opinion as to, okay, is that the right set of decisions? And the number two, the big parent decision is like, do I go along with what these people decide? Uh, and if these people decide something, like first, who are the people making the decision? What's the information they're using? Uh, and uh, what are the facts and the myths? Um, and so let, let's start. And this is something that um, like you and I were joking about uh, just, just a little bit ago, where there's like this tone I've seen in some of the media coverage where it's like, hey, some jerks want to reopen schools. And then the media organizations are like casting that as uh, a terrible idea and dangerous. And then as usual, the truth lies somewhere in between. Um, so first, can we lay out the case why, frankly, kids actually benefit from school or need school? Like schools are, are, uh, are like a huge value add on several levels. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's the sort of kid case and the kind of economy case for why we have schools. And so I think on the, on the kid side, um, one clear thing is that kids learn better in schools. So we saw this, you know, we, I mean, that should be sort of obvious. Um, but even if you sort of, if you look for a data from the spring about kind of what happened to metrics of learning uh, when kids went remote, you know, they, they went down a lot. Uh, kids do not learn as well uh, as well remotely. And that is particularly true for students who have fewer resources. Uh, and so that, I mean, the, the kind of potential learning losses and the inequality in those learning losses, if we, you know, if we are fully online or uh, with kind of no, yeah, as we were in the spring, the potential losses for the year are very, are very significant. So I think there's just like huge value for kids in being in school. And it isn't just learning, it's also socialization, you know, sort of thinking about like, what is your five-year-old getting out of, out of school? Yeah, part of it is like they're learning to read, they're learning their letters, but part of it is that they're learning to like operate in the, operate in the world. Um, we don't know that much about what's going to happen if we lose those things, but I think we have a sense that 
that they're, that they're important. And then there's a sort of separate issue, which is just schools are the kind of childcare that a lot of people are using. So if we want people to be able to go to their jobs and, you know, participate in the economy, particularly women, we need to figure out something for their kids to be doing during the day. And if that's not school, I don't know what it's, uh, what it's going to be. But, you know, I think people have bristled this idea that like school is childcare, like, oh, well, school is not childcare. Well, School is definitely childcare, people. School is childcare. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, it's, it's not pejorative. It's not. It's not meant to be pejorative, but it is. It is a thing that people are do- using for childcare for sure. And I think it's important to recognize that. Uh, yeah, you know, not this extreme end. Uh, my wife Evelyn said something because she's always looking out for, um, for for kids. She said like schools are an abuse detector. Where if if you are um, uh, mistreating your child, like the most common place people are going to pick up on it is when that kid goes to school and they, they have like a bruise or marking or they seem traumatized. Uh, so, you know, like it's, it's childcare. Yes. I mean, that's just a, a factual, uh, reality, but it's also in some cases, even like a safeguard or a haven. Yeah. And it's a place people get food, right? I mean, sort of look at like what, you know, what happened to food insecurity over the last, uh, you know, over this, this last period, you know, many, many more kids who are going hungry because, you know, the school lunch program is serving, you know, millions, tens of millions of kids every, every day. And, and I think part of what's missing from some of these conversations is a lot of the people having these conversations are, are, it's not that they don't care about these issues, but they're not living them. Right. So we're having this conversation. And like, the truth is like, if my kids don't go to school, that is going to be annoying for me, but it is, it is not, you know, there is, there is it's not, not existential. It's not, it's not existential. Right. Exactly. And a lot of the people who are having these conversations are in that role. And so we're sort of like, it's hard to really visualize quite how bad this may turn out to be for kids who are in a, a very different situation. Uh, so let's see if we can try and define the impact of an extended summer slump, uh, because I know when kids go off for the summer and they're, they're not uh, doing a whole lot, um, that there's some data around uh, the fact they forget stuff, uh, the fact that they, they learn things. So let's say we extended the summer slump by several months for the spring, which we probably did. Uh, like, do we have any sense of, of how, and as a parent, um, my kids haven't learned shit for like quite some time. <laughs> you know, it's like, like they, they, you have online school, but like, uh, I mean, it's not great. And, uh, like, and anyone who's out there first, actually let's unpack that for a moment because there are a lot of, um, like, uh, techno optimists who are like, Hey, um, online school is the future. Online school is a bomb. Why do we even send kids to school? Like uh, online is the way. Do we have data on uh, that? Aside from my anecdotal um, sense uh, that my kids have not been exactly like, uh, you know, tearing the world up over the last number of months. I mean, I think the best data I've seen on this was put out by um, actually one of my colleagues who's at Opportunity Insights. uh, And they use data from Zern, which is an online math platform that's linked to Eureka. So it's actually a platform a lot of schools use. Um, so it's basically, so Eureka is like a standard math curriculum. And then Zern is this like, like online portal where you basically like kids can sort of self-learn in, in Zern. A lot of schools use it in school. And what's really nice about it is you can track progress really granularly because there's like these badges. So you can see like at the end of each lesson, like you do this activity and then you earn a badge. So you can see like how quickly are kids learning these, earning these badges. Uh, and so they, they look at sort of what happens to kids who are enrolled in schools who are using Zern. So the school is using Zern before and after, and they can see like what happens to the number of badges. And in, you know, schools in high income districts, the, there is a lear- some learning loss that share, you know, the like badge earning goes down by like, I don't know, 30% uh, or something in, in schools in low income districts. And this isn't low income kids, it's just schools in low income districts. So at, it's going down by about 70%. Oh, so gosh. Like, yeah. So it's basically like people, and now some people have said, well, like maybe people are, you know, have moved to other, I mean, this sort of like technological, like, and maybe people move to even better systems for remote learning. I think my view would be like, it seems like the easiest thing to transition would be an online math platform that you are already using. If you ask like, what is the thing that is going to be the most successful in moving to remote learning? It would be things that are already on the computer. And so I think that that, you know, that gives you a sense. I mean, if you kind of translate that up to the whole year, I mean, this is like, a, like an unbelievably large amount of learning loss beyond the summer slump, which is already there. Yes. So, so it sounds like if you had to just throw in a couple numbers out, you could be like, look, um, 
these kids are learning math uh, at 30 to 70% less efficient or slower rates uh, than had been the case when they were in in-person schools as like a, just a, a general estimate, which jives with my sense of reality. Like if you were to tell me, hey, their learning is slowing up by 30 to 70%, um, I would agree. Uh, and what, what you said about uh, the social operating system that kids get in school. So I, I was a very nerdy kid. Um, and so I think that's mainly what I got out of school was trying to like traffic on like, what the heck is going on? Why is this kid, um, you know, seem to be uh, mad at me or whatever, like, uh, you know, like, like that, that kind of interaction. Um, and for my kids too, like when they're on online learning, uh, it's really, you know, they're not learning that and they just like wander off. I can actually sense my kids becoming less, uh, with it or personable because they're just not forced to interact with a whole lot of other people. And I'm sure parents around the country are experiencing the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that people's, you know, it's sort of been, been interesting in a negative way for many of us to kind of realize the ways that our kids deal with this, which is mostly not good. Um, but, you know, there are sort of kids like who are super social for whom I think this has been like, obviously very like hard, you know, it's sort of like just very hard they're moody, they're angry, they're, you know, they're depressed, like they just can't, can't see people. And then I think there are other kids, um, I think at least one of my kids is a little bit more like this, and maybe this is one of yours, where on the one hand, it actually seems fine, like they seem pretty happy, but you can sort of see that there are things about interacting with other people that they're starting to like, they're like skills at doing are starting to decay. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, when my kids went back to camp, it's actually like I, and they were around other kids, I realized how much they had missed that and how much, you know, for my five-year-old, like, like re-engaging with the question of like, okay, what is an appropriate amount of wrestling to do with another kid? Um, you know, and like, how am I supposed to like, for him sort of like monitoring his behavior is, is a thing like all five-year-old boys, like we, we work on, I realized we'd sort of like not had any of that. Um, and I think that, you know, that is a big piece of, I mean, it was a big piece for me of, of learning in school. Um, like how do I, deal with other people. Decay is the right word. I can almost sense my kids uh, decaying even as they're uh, growing <laughs> like over this last number of months, which is one reason why uh, to me, like this uh, trade-off uh, with schools is very real. And what you said about the fact that it's going to be vulnerable kids with lower levels of resources that are even more prone to uh, learning loss. Like, uh, and if you have kids who are struggling to begin with, and then you kneecap them by saying, hey, guess what? We're going to punch out, you know, six months of, of school at a crucial time. Uh, that's enormous, possibly. Like, the, this could be the sort of thing that ends up impeding the development of a generation uh, significantly. Yeah, I mean, and I think the other thing, you know, people have kind of come, people come back to that and they say, well, you know, it's not, like, we're not that like, let's not be so worried about learning losses. Like what if kids get sick? What if, and we can talk about sort of the risks to that. And yeah, and so let's on, talk but, about that in a minute. But let's just, let's just say like, let's, before we sort of put to find a point on like, like what are the risks of being in school? There are real like physical risks of not being in school. You talked, you know, you, you Evelyn, your wife's like pointing to abuse, but I think there's even this sort of like, you know, I, I've talked to somebody who does some consulting for the New Orleans public school district. And she said, basically there are people who have told her, look, I'm an essential worker. And like, I had to leave my seven-year-old home alone. Because I, I like, I have no child, like I had no. What are they going to do? Yeah. And like, what am I going to do? And you know, that's not really, it's really not good for kids. It's not good for their learning. It's not good for their social development. And it's not safe. Um, yeah. and, and then you can, you can see something tragic happening to that seven-year-old and then we're right. going to like blame the parent, uh, you know? Right, like, exactly. Uh, we're going to say like, you shouldn't, well, what are they, what did you want them to do? Like what choices you give people? This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. 
That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. But in terms of the safety, I mean, we talk about this stuff about safety, safety in schools. I mean, I think the evidence um, is, you know, is pretty clear at this point that kids are less affected by COVID than other groups. Um, it's not that they can't get it. It's not that they can't have serious illness, but it's just way less common than it is for adults. They're way less likely to get infected in the first place. They're much less likely to have serious illness. You know, there are a small number of pediatric deaths. Those, of course, are tragic but they're very small, uh, way below the pediatric deaths from the flu in the last, you know, sort of this last period. It wasn't even a very bad flu season. So, you know, this is, this is not a disease which seems to be very significant for kids based on what we know now. Um, so just to, to return to, to the learning loss point, um, your kids are about the same age as my kids. My kids are turning five and eight. Like, uh, is there an age at which this becomes like less of a big deal? Um, you know, where, because to me, if you look at young kids, then that seems like a very big deal because it's like a critical formative period. But then there might be an age where you're like, eh, like, you know, if, uh, the 15 year old is a shut in for a while, who cares? Um, or you could take it all the way up to, frankly, college age, uh, you know, like, like uh, college is trying to make similar decisions. Um, and my instinct is that it's more important for young kids. Is, is that uh, correct? Yeah, I think that that's, that's basically everyone's instinct. I think that's, that's kind of right. Um, and people sort of like to draw these distinctions between kind of elementary, middle, high school, college as sort of like four buckets uh, with the idea that elementary, for elementary school students, you know, the in-person learning component, like the face-to-face -face learning is just way, like that is the group who benefits most from face-to-face -face learning relative to remote learning. And then as you age, it gets sort of easier to move things, um, to move things online. Um, and I think that's probably right. I mean, some of these points we're making about vulnerable kids, that's going to be true, you know, throughout the, right, kids who don't have internet, uh, doesn't, you know, you could be great, a great high school student at learning online, but if you're living in a homeless shelter, then your internet is not going to be good enough to access remote schooling. So I think there's a kind of like piece of it, which is that basically all elementary school kids will benefit a lot from face-to-face -face learning. That may be true of only a, a smaller subset of the, of the older kids. And so there's kind of some balance, some balance there. Uh, so it sounds like focusing on young kids makes a lot of sense. One, because you'd have uh, higher impact on that population. But two, my understanding from the data is that when you talk about the danger to kids and their capacity to spread, um, it seems like it corresponds to age, where if you have young kids, they themselves don't get sick, and then they don't come and infect you, uh, like you, even if they're exposed. Yeah, yeah. So I think our, our sort of in increasingly our data points to both of those things, that, that the youngest age groups are both less likely to be infected and much less likely to transmit. And that older kids are also less likely to be infected. Maybe they do transmit in a way that is closer to adults. I think the jury is still out on that uh, a little bit. So I think the evidence is most compelling on, on the sort of youngest, like the elementary school age group. And that, that instinctively makes sense to me because, you know, some 16-year-olds are essentially adult sized. I mean, it's not like yeah. this virus is like, ooh, you're only 16. <laughs> it's like... Yeah. If yeah, no, I mean, people have noted there's like sort of interesting, this is like, sort of like when you like nerd out on this stuff, basically, there's this question of like, you know, is, is there a cut point at puberty? You know, is it is there something that's actually making kids less susceptible that sort of like switches a little bit at puberty? Or is it just like, as you get bigger, kind of you spread the virus more? Like, is there something else? There's like, what exactly is going on this question of why are kids not affected as much? is of a lot of research interest because it isn't true of most respiratory illnesses. So something like the flu is really like kids and the elderly are the big affected groups. 
or is this just sort of the kids seem to kind of not be in there? It's yeah. Um, that, that is really interesting. Like yeah. uh, some um, sort of kid immunity, which we're all grateful for. I mean, at least yeah. like imagine if it was the reverse. Um, so I, I think um, this discussion around the actual impact of the lack of in-person schooling on kids is really important and informative. And then the other, uh, uh, other cost that you pointed out is the fact that without this sort of childcare, there are going to be a lot of parents making very different decisions. For someone like you, you said, well, this is like a pain, but it's not like going to be crippling. Like, you know, it just means that um, like me and my husband have to uh, take shifts and do, do different sorts of work and uh, the rest of it. But then if you look at like a single mom, like that mom in New Orleans, where it's like, hey, it's me, my seven-year-old, I've got an essential job, I can't not go. Ordinarily, I'd drop my kid off at school and then pick them up after, but now there's no school. Uh, so do we have numbers around how serious that impact would be? And I sense it, it's going to be like, it's going to be enormous if, that, if you put uh, millions of uh, families in that situation. Yeah, I mean, I think we don't have good estimates. I, you know, I saw somebody sort of trying to put together basically some estimates of this, just the, like the basic size of the labor market impacts, which is not exactly the same as welfare, but like just sort of thinking about like what share of households are going to be in a situation in which basically somebody has to leave the labor force. That's different from the question of like, what are people going to do if they really can't leave? And like, you know, what are you going to do with your kids? And, you know, it's not that cities haven't recognized this. So New York is talking about, okay, we're going to open a bunch of childcare centers. You know, we're going to like fund a bunch of childcare centers for, uh, for people we'll who need- schools yeah, or something. Right. Now that of course has its own set of sort of like weird complications, which is like a lot of the health advice to the extent that we do, you know, we sort of do think about like, how could we open schools safely? A lot of the advice is like, okay, keep the kids in pods, you know, like have your kid, have the like little kids interact with the same, you know, 15 like other kids. But of course, if your school plan now is two days on, two days in another like mixed childcare setting, uh, you're going to have, now you have not preserved the pods. So it is possible that like, that's actually a sort of riskier way to do, to do this. Um, I understand. And I also find, I don't, yeah. Alternating the, the child between the school and the childcare pod actually ends up um, creating more exposure than, than it would limit. It could. I mean, I think the, the place that I was thinking about this is, you know, like, what if, like, what are the kinds of things parents would do if, you know, if the city is not providing this, my, or, you know, if, like, if the school district is not providing childcare, what's going to happen? You know, the, like, older woman down the street who isn't working is going to open a home daycare that meets on the, like, on the off days when kids are not in school. Well, that's, like, actually really dangerous because that is a high-risk person. And now you're, like, you know, bringing a bunch of kids who are interacting outside the home back into this, into this setting. So if that's where we end up, that's way worse from a public health standpoint than, you know, having kids in school all the time. That is a fantastic example. And it's fantastic because it just shows what a real-world response would be that uh, confronts this reality, where if you're a parent and your school closes, you're like, oh, my gosh, what the heck are we going to do? And then you have to make really difficult choices like that mom in New Orleans who's like, I guess I'm leaving the seven-year-old alone, even though that's a terrible idea. Um, or it'd be like, hey, grandma uh, is uh, opening this like uh, neighborhood daycare. And so we're all going to pull the kids there, even though grandma is 68 and has, uh, you know, some pre-existing conditions. Diabetes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's what that's, I mean, and this is like the sort of, this is the distinction between the, like the reality and the kind of ideas that we, you know, sort of like we start with the idea, like we want to protect people, but there's like an on the ground, like what is actually going to happen when you do this? Yes, I love it. And the other big point you make is like, look, there is not like a zero risk situation uh, here where we manage risks all the time. So you have to look and say, what is the harm to this child, this community, this uh, regional economy, the, the parents? Um, the new health risks versus the health risks you're foreclosing by uh, not having school. Uh, and, and to me, this is a much more complicated uh, conversation than the like people who want to bring school back are like dangerous or something. It's right. a, you know, I mean, like instinctively the problem, and this is a point you make, and I'd love to go into this is like, look, it may be the right thing to do to reopen schools for certain kids in certain places with like certain circumstances, but you'd want to do it right rather than willy nilly. 
Um, so let, let's talk about what doing it right could look like. And this is something you're frustrated by, I'm frustrated by, is that there's like a real abdication of responsibility going on um, uh, on the part of the public where if you're a community and you say, we're in the midst of a pandemic, school's important. Like we, we have schools for a reason. Like, you know, they, 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 help, uh, they help structure this entire community's uh, uh, schedules and well-being. Uh, so what are we missing to try and reopen it? Um, so you earlier said that there are a few different things and I've seen the same thing where you have schools saying, hey, we're gonna stagger schedules. Um, we're gonna do uh, three days a week or two days a week um, and, uh, and then the other days your kids at home. Um, and you have online only, um, you have uh, people going with a normal schedule. Uh, so what are the trade-offs between the different approaches? I think most people would understand what the online only trade-offs are. It's like, no one goes to school and we have some, some, um, teachers. And I have to say too, like, uh, you know, that from what I've seen, like the online curricula are all over the map, um, in, in terms of, uh, robustness and efficacy. Um, so saying we're going to bring the school online often is bullshit. Um, so, so that there, there's that reality, um, because, and it's not a total knock in the sense that it's not like these schools and classrooms and teachers were set up to, for online teaching. I mean, literally it's like, I showed up, there were 28 second graders, uh, and then now the 28 second graders are in 28 homes and I'm like teaching them all day online. Like that, that's not reality. Uh, and so that then there is like this. Uh, strange hodgepodge of approaches. Um, but if you're a school district and you're weighing, for example, what's the difference in risk between a five-day school week and let's say a three-day school week? I mean, I think we don't really, I think we don't really know. I think the, the question is, you know, how much, so it, the reason people have gone to the three-day school week is, or the two or three, whatever is the, is yeah. the thing is to have fewer people in the classroom at once. So that relies pretty heavily on the idea that there's some either some pod benefit or some social distance benefit. And I think realistically, given how this is going, if you think if you are doing this for public health reasons, it must be that you think there's something about social distancing, because I think the pod argument is does not really like sort of follow through once you think about what people are going to be doing like outside of their of their days. So if you sort of think the thing is, I just can't get 30 kids in this classroom because the kids need to be physically distant. And so I only can use half of the uh, half of the space. And, and, um, and so when the schools are going to half time, they're bringing in half the kids Monday and Wednesday and then the other half the kids Tuesday and Thursday. Is that the thinking? I mean, some of them. It's like, I don't know if you've, I don't know how much you've seen about the New York City public school plans, but the New York City public school plans are like, there's like schools can choose from like seven different options. There's like a model where it's like group A comes on Monday, group B comes on Tuesdays and alternate Thursdays, group C comes on Wednesday and Tuesdays on alternate Tuesdays. I mean, it's like, like all over the map in terms of complexity. There's a three, the three groups and the one online model, the two groups and the one online model. Like there, this is like in this, everything is like, like totally like wacky. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's kind of the idea that you could then have more space in the classroom. I personally would have said, if you, if you feel like that's important, I would have, I would have advocated opening, like doing more of a kind of prioritized return where you prioritize younger kids and vulnerable older kids. And you use like the, some of the space in the classrooms, uh, like the high school classrooms for elementary and you like bring back the elementary school kids all the time, but nobody seems to be doing that. That what you're suggesting seems to make sense. Uh, the where, I mean, clearly younger kids are going to be impacted more. I mean, heck, half these high school kids would like uh, jump for joy. If, <laughs> if this is what I think we like, we're doing this at, you know, we're doing this at Brown. We're going to have like, I mean, we're going to try to bring some people back in person, but all these like big lecture classes are online. People are like, oh, you know, the, it's too bad that they have lecture classes have to be online. I'm like, are you kidding? These kids, it's like their dream is to take Chem 330 online. Everyone's whole problem with Chem 330 is that you have to go to the lecture. Like, it's, they don't care. So. Yeah. So, uh, so it, it sounds like a lot of the concern is around uh, the physical layout of classrooms and social distancing. Um, now, I've got kids who are turning five and eight, and I have absolutely zero confidence that they would wear masks all day and socially distance um, because they're kids. And kids seem to want to 
um, run around and laugh and like crash into each other and breathe into each other's faces um, uh, an awful lot. And imagining that they're going to sit there with their hands in their laps for six hours a day, six feet away from each other, just seems like, um, like a total fantasy to me. Uh, and so like, if I bring my kids back to school, which I very like right now we're, we're planning on doing, like I, I do not have any expectation that the teacher is somehow going to maintain um, the, this distance in the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think, that's, I think that's right. I think it's important that we be realistic about what we can expect for kids. I mean, for older kids, you could expect them to wear masks like some of the time. Uh, I think it's reasonable to suggest that teachers, that teachers wear masks. And in fact, I would go beyond that. I would say that basically, if we're going to bring people back to school, you know, teachers are, are afraid. Now, whether they, you know, whether they should be afraid or not is ir like irrelevant, like they are afraid. If we're going to tell teachers you need to come back to school, I think we need to classify them as essential workers. And if we classify them as essential workers, we need to provide them with like PPE. They need to have surgical masks. And I think it's reasonable to say like teachers should teach in, you know, if, they're, if, they, want, if they want to, they should teach in surgical masks. That's something we can accomplish, I think. Adults can wear masks. Um, but for kids, yeah, I think it's not, it's not realistic to say the only, re the only way we can go back is if kids act like, you know, adults. But when we look at school reopens in other countries, and I think that this is, this is a sort of the best evidence we, we have on what happens when we look at sort of school reopens in, in Europe, you know, they encourage some social distancing. They have the classrooms be a little bit less dense, but it isn't like German kids are that different or French kids are that different than American kids, you know? And so, so they, I think they, it's pretty clear. They did kind of interact with each other. And you see these pictures, like kids are on a playground, they're playing, um, they're playing together. And, and, you know, they still, those places had, it does not look like schools contributed to spread. There wasn't a lot of spread within, uh, within schools, not none, but, but did not seem to be like there was much spread, spread in schools. And so I think that's, that's sort of encouraging about even a kind of realistic approach to reopen in places where the virus is not totally out of control. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Um, I think your point about teachers is is really important and central where we're talking about this as if you have decision makers and then you have kids and then you have uh, um, parents and economic considerations. But if you're a teacher, you're thinking, wait a minute. And some teachers are older. Um, so if you're a teacher and you're like, wait a minute, uh, you know, I'm 58 and have asthma or something along those lines. Uh, and uh, I feel like it's going to be a real threat to my health if I go in and teach 25 kids let's 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 call them seventh graders like 25 seventh graders who are like around a particular level um and am i being protected in some way and what you just talked about how giving teachers ppe i imagined uh you may know this better than i do but i imagine it would be very difficult to teach with the mask on um like if if you were you know having to somehow um, broadcast your your class of let's call it a diminished class of like 15 uh, seventh graders or whatnot. Um, but like even when I have exchanges with people at convenience stores, like sometimes I have to take the mask off for them to understand like, you know, like what I'm saying. 
Um, and so I actually found myself thinking, it's like, is there some kind of design um, where we could do, like maybe it's one of these like Plexa shields or something, um, like if you, but, but it, it's, it seems like it'd be tough. Um, and, and also, you know, if I was a teacher too, like the odds of my wearing the mask all day, because even when I go out and shop, it's like, you know, like the mask is somewhat uncomfortable, I take it off, it's like an hour, like whatever. But if you said, hey, stand there for like, um, you know, five hours, then I'd be like, you know, I mean, I would do it if, if you know, you know what I mean? Like, so yeah. like, I, I think it would impede their, um, their abilities. Um, but at the same time, it seems very reasonable if you're a teacher who's in this situation, be like, listen, like, am I just supposed to go and um, interact with all these kids who I don't know where they go, like they go home, their, their parents could be, um, you know, getting exposed in various ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like a few, a few things there. So one, you know, one is I, you know, it's pretty clear that we're going to have to have some, you know, system for people sort of in the teaching staff to do, you know, to do this to, for some people to teach and some people not. Uh, and, you know, I, they're just as you would have systems for, for, you know, people to take leaves and take leaves in other ways. And we're going to need to figure out how to fill in that workforce. And, you know, people have suggested things like, you know, like, can we use some college students to like, you know, some people on a gap year to fill in and sort of, sort of like in different ways, not really as teachers, but like, is there a role for more paraprofessional kind of, kind of work? Like, I mean, there's maybe ways to be creative about this. Clearly we do not want to bring people back who are at risk. I think we also want to be realistic with teachers about what their risk actually is. So, you know, for example, and that, that's a question for data, right? So when Sweet, so Sweden kept their schools open um, they like the whole time. And it's not like Sweden liked it so great. Um, you know, they have like a very high death rate, but they never closed schools, uh, particularly elementary and middle schools. They did close high schools. Um, but in, you know, and then they, they can look at like, what are the, you know, what are the infection rates? Like do, do teachers look like they're more likely to be infected than the general population? And the answer is no, actually wow. teachers, teachers are not a high risk uh, are not, they just kind of like have about the same infection rate as everyone else, which is not true of all jobs. So for example, being a food service worker or a, or a, a bus driver in Sweden is like very high risk. Um, those are like jobs where, you know, there's five times the rate of hospitalization of the, of the kind of general population. Um, but that's not true of teachers. So I think it's important to kind of telegraph that like, actually, you know, this is, this may not be the riskiest thing that you do. And so if you are, you know, if you are comfortable going to like eat indoor, indoors at a restaurant, that's actually probably lower risk, uh, sorry, higher risk than, uh, than teaching. Well, that, that's a very compelling um, set of data and comparison where if you are a food service worker or a bus driver, um, you've been deemed essential and you're going and, uh, you know, not to say that, I mean, to me, there should be like elevated compensation um, for yeah, a lot of people I agree with that. Uh, in, in these circumstances, but it, it hasn't been um, like an exodus uh, in, in many cases. Um, so if teachers are truly at low levels of risk, and I also agree, and there's a, a, the, the, an umbrella to this, and I, I know you agree with this, is that, you know, there should be a level of um, opting in, opting out, like voluntariness to, to a lot of this. Like, that to me, if you were a 58-year-old teacher with asthma and you were like, look, maybe you can explain to me that my risks are not that high, um, but I'd rather just not take that chance. Um, you know, I have a family of my own, like, uh, you know, that, that there are various considerations. Then you could say, okay, like, uh, I get it just in the same way that if there was a parent who said, like, you know, I don't care what the school district says, I'm going to, like, homeschool my kids for a year. You'd be like, well, you know, I'm not going to begrudge you that. Um, and so the, the, que the question really is whether or not you have the flexibility and adaptiveness in the system where you can differentiate between the 58-year-old teacher who does not want to set foot in that classroom at all and then, so, and then some other teacher who's like, I'm actually okay with this. Like, I miss my kids. Um, and, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I think my risks are low. I'm like hail and hearty. Um, and, and one possibility would be to say, like, look, we have no problems if you don't want to teach. Um, you're going to take like a mild haircut like this year, like uh, on your salary. So there's like some impact, like you're, you know, it's not going to be enormous. Like you're still just going to be able to, to like be just fine. And then for the, this other teacher who's saying, Hey, like I, I'm uh, excited to go back to the classroom. It's like, Hey, we're going to give you like a slight bump just because we know you're taking on like a little bit more. And your idea about these paraprofessionals to me is really important because on the other side of this, 
you have like enormous dislocation in the labor market. You have tons of people that um, would love to do some kind of work, uh, including a lot of young people who are taking gap years. Um, and, and so this is part of the adaptiveness, but I think you and I are both relatively um, pessimistic about the level of adaptiveness that many of these um, school districts or institutions have. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think if you sort of said like, okay, you know, go design from scratch, everyone is like, you know, a good actor and you have like some resources and you can, um, you know, you can sort of be creative. There's all kinds of interesting stuff that we could do. Like, for example, teachers who don't, I mean, I like, I like your idea very much about sort of moving the compensation a little bit. I think the other thing that you could do is sort of say, look, you know, we're, there's going to be some kids who are not willing to come back, not able to come back to school because they, their family, you know, just for whatever reason, they're not coming back to school. And there's some teachers who don't want to come back to school. Okay, so let's match those. So let's basically like sort of run this in a couple of parallel tracks where there's like some teachers who are specializing in kind of doing online stuff with a set of kids who can't return to the classroom. And then some teachers who are, you know, in the classroom with other kids, yes. all kinds of stuff you could do, but you know, we're like, but since it seems like all of the approaches are just like, let's take what we did before and do it at like 40%. It's just like, take it and do it 40% and, and but do the same, but just 40% of it. And I, you know, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's great, but I like you, I'm sort of like not optimistic and it feels like every day more places are like, ah, forget it. Like, let's just go online and not worry about it, which is. Well, well, well this is something that too, if you're an administrator, you're looking at this, like, so let's say I'm the superintendent of schools and I, I've got teachers and potentially their union looking at me being like, Hey, FYI, like we do not feel like going back to the classroom, uh, you know? Uh, and you're looking at them and say, okay, like, I understand that. And then you have some parents being like, hey, I don't feel like going back to the classroom. Uh, and you look up and say, well, like it may be easier for me to do like the safe thing and then just pull the plug on uh, in-person schools. Because, uh, you know, like that, that seems to be where a lot of my interests are heading. Um, but then there's like a real cost to obviously the children, uh, like the parents who then have to uh, juggle, not even juggle. I mean, in some cases, uh, you know, completely... Um, change their, like, you know, if they even have the flexibility to do so, uh, you know, like, uh, like have someone like stay out of the workforce entirely um, uh, or take risks with their children. Uh, I mean, uh, so I, I think that that's like the calculation that uh, a lot of um, school districts are weighing right now. And you make a point too, that, that I think is um, something that we should not be missing uh, is that if we had our shit together, like we'd be, plowing resources into these schools so that they can actually um, do things possibly uh, in a way that would make everyone more comfortable. Um, for example, I think there was something um, where someone estimated that the average school district would spend $1.8 million on sanitary wipes and, uh, and sanitizer, like if they were to have protocols around just cleaning stuff all the time, mm -hmm. which might help everyone feel safer. Like if you had, and it's the you know, so that would be the beginning of something. Um, but most schools are so cash-strapped that they're not even um, meeting their operating needs right now, much less having an extra $1.8 million in the school budget for, uh, for Santa wipes um, uh, and the rest of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's just like there's, the, you know, they're lacking resources. And I think that this, pre you know, this pressure that's coming from, you know, from teachers, yeah, to some extent from unions, uh, from from parents, I think you know part of what's hard is that the most vocal that there are some people who are very vocal, uh, and that tends to be the people in this space who don't want to open. And you're not hearing a lot from the parents, from the single parents who like don't have any other childcare options, who are you know part, because those people are working, uh, so they can pay rent and they don't have time to like mobilize on Facebook to like complain. Which is not like, it is not to say that there aren't like, you know, valid, valid thinking there. But I think that part of it is like the most vocal people are getting the most airtime. And some of the more vulnerable groups are not getting that airtime because they are, uh, because they are, do not have time to be mobilizing. Uh, and it will exacerbate um, the inequities where if you're, uh, affluent and you're like, hey, no way are we risking um, our health uh, and then you don't have school for a semester. It's the family that, you know, where, where the kid's just going to be watching TV all day long um, uh, and falling further behind 
you know, who's just going to end up paying a bigger price. Um, and you're right that they don't tend to have as loud a voice in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we see things like these, like, like the, like the last three days have seen a lot of discussion of the pandemic pods, right. Where like rich, you know, rich now that California is fully online, uh, wealthier parents are hiring their own teachers for their like mini homeschools. Now, I don't know how much of this is like apocryphal and how much of it is really going to happen. Uh, but it definitely illustrates like when you have a set of people who are able to have their own school and then a set of people who like, don't have the resources to have their own school, you know, we're going to, we're going to see growth in the inequality that's already there. Yeah. And schools can at least be like, uh, helping ease that inequality if, if everything goes ideally. Um, and, and to me, that's really, um, getting missed in a lot of this conversation, uh, you know, where, uh, and reducing schools to, content that you can deliver online also strikes me as just um, completely missing the point. You know, I mean, and it's something that uh, makes me sad that, uh, that we're putting things out there that are, frankly, in my mind, leading more schools to close uh, than that probably should be the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that there are some I mean, so is one thing somebody said yesterday in a call I was on that I thought was really smart was like, I was, he was basically, this is somebody who's very pro school opening. And he said, it's not that I think that every school should be open, but I think that schools should be the first to open and the last to close. And so in, there are places in the country at the moment, Texas, Florida, Arizona, like many places where basically everything should be closed. Like we, like the virus is in a, in a place where like we should not be having beaches and outdoor dining and indoor dining and bars. And, you know, like we should be sort of down to like lockdown essential services. And in those places, yeah, you also shouldn't have schools. But in places where you are having in outdoor dining and indoor dining and where the bars are open to say then, well, schools, like let's not open schools, seems like it really misses both the differences in risks across things, things that schools are a lot less risky than bars and also the benefits, um, at least to, you know, some to, to kids, basically. I mean, maybe you could say there are some people who prefer bars to schools. That's almost certainly true. But as a society, I think that I, I think we should. I think we could agree that the social utility of schools is higher than bars. Well, you and I can agree. <laughs> no, no, I mean, let's not like, you know, let's not put words in everyone's mouth, Andrew. Some people might not agree with that, but I think we could agree that. Oh, that. even if I was a young single person and a frequenter of bars, <laughs> like if, if you came and said, hey, schools are bars um, and you'd say, look, from my perspective, I, I enjoy bars more, but like clearly schools because that person went to a school <laughs> like, like presumably for a number of years and it got them in position to go to the bar. Go to the bar. That's how you get the money to have a job to go to the bar. Exactly. Yeah. And the social skills to be able to go in the bar and not, um, you know, uh, um, like uh, completely... Uh, alienate uh, yourself from everyone at the bar. True. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, you know, that's, and that's really like at the core, I think that's really where I'm so frustrated is that we seem like we've sort of missed the boat on prioritizing something that's so important. And now we're just sort of like waving our hands and giving up on it. One of the reasons why I was um, so excited to talk to you, and I think anyone listening to this who wants um, to get a sense of the data around COVID, around parenting, you should certainly seek out uh, Emily as the preeminent resource in organizing uh, the world. But like, the frustration I have is that uh, is that we just don't seem to be using data to make intelligent, rigorous, balanced decisions. Uh, and, and instead, it, it, it descends into fear and sensationalism pretty quick. Um, and, and then if you try and stand in the, the face of fear and sensationalism, then you want to kill everyone. You know, it's like, actually, like, I'm not sure if, if that's, you know, like, yeah. like what I'm trying to do. Like, it's I, not I the way I would have put it. <laughs> that, you know, I think there's some social benefits to some of the things. And... Like there, there's just a world of risk and not to say we should take every risk. Um, but if, if there was a place where you're trying to push the envelope a bit, it would be in my mind, schools, particularly for young children, particularly for kids who the school is like, like the, their path to, to a decent life potentially, or like a decent life. Cause, cause this is one of the things too, that um, 
and the the mom from New Orleans really puts like the the best picture on it. Um, but there's like this notion that like our homes are orderly, like families are orderly, and like the and you know kids can be at home or at school, and if schools are risky, then they should be at home. Um, then there's another world where the homes are just chaos and madness and stress and like everything else. And the school actually, relatively speaking, uh, is a source of order. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that many people are coming at it from the former lens um, and really like the world's much more complex where like it, it's like just a mishmash of situations where there are a lot of home situations that um, that like benefit from having the kids someplace else for X number of hours uh, during the day. Like I, I actually even think like relationships benefit um, from that. Cause there, there, there are a lot of situations right now where you have like family members are stuck together and like the optimal amount of time that they should spend with each other is like X hours. And instead it's like five X and then like everyone's like going nuts. <laughs> you know, like yes, I do know about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is from, Parents who like, you know, I'll put myself in this bucket of world. It's like, I think I've got a, like a, like a highly functional, very safe, like uh, home environment, but even we're like pulling our hair out. And so like, if, if you wind up with like a stressed out single parent, who's like balancing some shift, like, uh, you, you know, it's like, like we're taking it too much from this lens that uh, like everyone's homes are hunky dory uh, and that the kid's going to be perfectly like safe and cared for. And it's like, oh, they'll miss some learning. It's like, actually, it might be more fundamental than that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we sort of, we need to switch the conversation a little bit from like, well, this is learning versus death into something that's like a bit more nuanced that takes, you know, that thinks about kind of the other losses associated with school and also is like a little bit more realistic about what we're actually looking at on the risk side. So to, to end this conversation, um, as parents ourselves, when we're being presented with this decision, because people listening to this, some uh, are parents, I'm sure, um, so like, what are the considerations that we should have um, when our school says, hey, guess what? I think my school is on the um, three days a week train. Um, uh, so like, uh, are, are there things that I should be keeping in mind, whether I'm, I'm on board? I mean, I think I would, you know, I, when my kids school, you know, my school is kids school has said they're on the five days a week train. We'll see if we if we get there. Um, and, you know, I think the things that I'm going to look for in their plan, which I'm supposed to get next week, are, you know, some understanding of kind of what they're going to do about, you know, symptom tracking or monitor, like some sense of like how they're going to pay attention to what's going on with kids and keep sick kids home. Uh, and then, you know, some sense of what they're going to do when there are cases. And so I sort of like to see schools acknowledge the reality that like, you know, we're in a viral pandemic and so there are going to be some people, even if there's no transmission in school, we're going to see cases in schools. And so like, what's their reaction going to be there, both from a safety standpoint, from also from a, of a sort of shutdown standpoint, right? If the answer is like, basically, as soon as there's a case, we shut the whole school for two weeks, then, you know, schools are really not open. And so then I might as well plan for something for something else. Um, and so I think those are kind of the biggest things that I'm, um, that I'm looking for. And then when, you know, when we get to like actually sending them back, I'm going to look at what's going on in the, in the area that we are, that we are in, um, like how are things in Rhode Island? Because I think that gives me a little bit of a sense of kind of what do we expect to the rates to be in the area that we're, um, that we're in the school. No, very reasonable considerations. Uh, you know, I, I plan on sending my kids, um, back to school, um, with the expectation that it may not be for the entire fall, um, because I, I think that, um, to your point, that if there is a case, uh, then people are going to shut down pretty quick. You know, part of it is like trying to make it so that even if you do end up with um, the virus in your household, that you don't have people who are high risk um, uh, who, who may be uh, affected by it. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic um, that hopefully our kids will get some learning in. Um, but I also know that um, my kids are among the kids that would be better prepared, pre prepared and provided for. Uh, and then if you look at it society wide, I'm more concerned about the kids for whom school is truly a vital haven. Um, and it's not just, oh, you miss some learning, then like, oh, you'll catch up on it later. It's like, I, I think unfortunately, some of this time will be gone for good. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Emily, it's such a pleasure. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Um, for no, me? this is this is great. Thank you. 
Uh, hopefully this will be another way to get um, your perspective out there. Uh, and I am a huge fan of yours and your work. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of yours too. So uh, this I'll is really fun for me. I'll probably return to you um, anytime there's something else complicated out there that we want to make sense of for people. <laughs> that would be, that would be great. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Excellent. Well, say hello to, to everyone um, at Brown for me. And um, Likewise. we envy you right. really. I'll tell my wife about this conversation and she'll be Good. like, Ooh, we got to get there. We got to get there. All right. All right. Bye, Emily. Have a great Bye, day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>